Brazil's election day is right around the corner. Over 156 million people are eligible to vote, making Brazil the world's fifth largest democracy after India, the US, Indonesia and Pakistan. Brazilians will elect their president for the next four years on Sunday, but also 513 House members, 27 senators of a total of 81, governors for the country's 27 states, and thousands of state legislators. And the election comes with looming fears that President Jair Bolsonaro, who is in a position of disadvantage, according to the polls, may try to challenge the results and overthrow the election. So today we're discussing the main things you need to keep an eye out for on Election Day. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. As you may already know, the Brazilian Report is funded by subscriptions and support from loyal readers. Besides subscribing to our website and getting exclusive daily content on Brazil and Latin America, you can also treat our staff to one to five cups of coffee a month. And in return, you get exclusive benefits like special newsletters, behind-the-scenes content, as well as a shout-out here on our podcast. And today, I want to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members, Michael Metcalf, Luis Hens, Fabricio Ferreira, Felipe Saito, José Rose Stankovic, Gabriela Graf Ines, Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftar, Tonica Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, Anna Land, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. If you are like them and believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on our podcast, just head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report and subscribe to one of our membership tiers. If you cannot make a monthly commitment, you can still tip us a cup of coffee every now and then to give us just the energy boost we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America, we appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report to find out more. Ewan Marshall, here we are, the home stretch of the Brazilian 2022 election. How are you? Hi, Gustavo. Yeah, very good. Looking forward to the vote. By the way, we at The Brazilian Report are going to host a special live broadcast on Election Day, commenting on the results and what they mean moving forward and getting all the breaking news that you need to stay abreast with this election. So you and I, uh, Ewan, will be sharing hosting duties, but there will be lots of experts who are much brighter than us. Not that I'm selling ourselves short. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> So, Ewan, let's talk about the key ingredients of this year's election, and let's do it in a crescendo. So, I'd like to start by talking about state races, uh, which are often overlooked. Where are we paying special attention? 
Well, I think we can't avoid the most populous states. Uh, our Brazilian correspondent, Sede Silva, he's already talked about a lot of the main state races. So for this podcast, I'd just like to focus on two of them, which are Sao Paulo and Bahia. In Sao Paulo, which is Brazil's richest state, we have a three-way race for the governorship between the incumbent, Rodrigo Garcia, the former Sao Paulo city mayor, Fernando Haddad, and Jair Bolsonaro's former infrastructure minister, Tarcísio de Freitas. Now, Rodrigo Garcia, he's largely unknown to the public because, you know, he was elected as a lieutenant governor in 2018, and he only took office in April of this year when his previous boss, the former governor, João Doria, when he resigned to try to uh, run for president, and, you know, that didn't quite pan out very well for him. And Haddad and Tarcísio, on the other hand, they're running on the coattails of their political godfathers, who are also, happen to be, the presidential frontrunners, Lula and Jair Bolsonaro, respectively. And with just a few days until Election Day, what is the state of the São Paulo governor's race? Well, it's starting to get quite interesting, actually. Uh, Fernando Haddad has consistently polled in the lead, and that's given hope for his Workers' Party to finally win in Brazil's biggest state, and which the place that is actually the party's political birthplace. But Haddad has trended down from 38% of the vote in mid-August to 34% now. And Tarcísio, who's Bolsonaro's man, he seems to have flattened out at around 23%, while Rodrigo Garcia is gaining some name recognition and, you know, he's rising to almost reach a statistical tie with Tarcísio at 19%. Now, the final debate for the São Paulo governorship will take place just hours after we finish recording this episode, so we can't comment on the outcome, but I think we can safely say it's going to be a bit of a nail-biter in São Paulo. And for those who don't know, in elections for the executive branch, if a candidate does not reach a majority of votes in the first round, then we have a runoff between the two leaders uh, this year. It will happen on October the 30th. And in São Paulo, we know for sure that this will be a two-round race. Yeah, definitely. And what's interesting is that given the state's track record, whoever comes in second place and is going to face Fernando Haddad in the runoff might actually be the favorite in the end. Yes, no, you're right. Sao Paulo is a state that tilts conservative. So yeah, totally agree that whoever qualifies for the runoff might be the favorite. Uh, at this point in the race, I don't like to consider a lot these runoff simulations because that's not where voters headspace is at but some of these um, simulations suggest that uh, conservative uh, candidates might have a stronger claim to the governorship than Haddad. Now moving on uh, what about Bahia which is the biggest most populous state in the northeast region of Brazil? Well, yeah, so at first, the race in Bahia looked absolutely sewn up uh, with Asemi Neto, the former mayor of the capital, Salvador. He was leading by miles and he was tipped to win in a landslide. But that was until a couple of weeks ago. Asemi Neto has started to sink in the polls and the Workers' Party candidate, Jerónimo Rodríguez, who was previously unknown, has actually gained 19 points. Now, the gap between the two has been cut in half from 32 percentage points to just 16 points in less than three weeks. Jesus, and what the hell is happening in Bahia? 
Well, the thing is, the northeast region as a whole is a bit of a stronghold for Lola and the Workers' Party. And what's happening now is as the election is coming closer, candidates are beginning to notice that Geronimo Rodriguez is Lola's candidate in the state and not Asiemi Neto. Since 2006, the year Lola was re-elected as president, his party has won in Bahia by huge margins. Uh, a region was once dominated by the Magalhães family dynasty, of which Asiemi Neto is the current star, but now it is definitely a Lola-centred fortress. Yeah, no, and it's interesting that uh, there's this fringe poster called Atlas, and they picked up on that trend way before the more traditional posters because they were showing voters a list of candidates with their respective parties. So when voters knew that Jerónimo was a guy from the Workers' Party, therefore a Lula ally, they were uh, more prone to picking Jerónimo. Uh, some people criticize that poll because they should they say uh, they should do like uh, traditional polls do and just say the name of the candidate. But uh, Atlas executives have said that, well, voters will be presented in uh, leaflets and in ads with the name of the candidate and the name of the party. So it would be a better gauge of uh, voter preference. So. In a couple of days, we will know uh, if they were right. But circling back to what you said about the fact that uh, Bahia and the Northeast at large has become this sort of Lula stronghold, how did that happen and how did that still is the case 12 years after Lula left power? Yeah, well, following Lula's victory in 2002, uh, his administration sought to invest billions in the Northeast region. Because uh, from 2003 onwards, the Workers' Party bolstered investment in healthcare, education, and infrastructure, and they significantly reduced extreme poverty in, and you know, the Northeast is actually the is actually Brazil's poorest region on the whole. And some critics accuse the party of using northeastern states as kind of voting fodder. Uh, though others argue that he, you know, Lola was just trying to right a century-old wrong that has allowed the region to fall behind the rest of the country. Anyway, now uh, Lola is the biggest kingmaker in the northeast, and in that region alone, he is polling at sixty-two percent for president. Yeah, no, this is amazing. So. The Bahia race, which was said to be a doozer, can now be this nail-biter. Yeah, it definitely looks that way. Right. Uh, Ewan, I don't want us to get into congressional races because they are too hard to predict. Polling for them is quite iffy uh, when there are polls. And that's because voters tend not to care so much about these races in most cases, until they're in the line for voting. So let's move on to the main issues regarding this election. And that means talking about the presidential race. And as we have been saying for months and months, uh, it's the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro against former President Lula. We have other candidates, but these two are the ones that truly matter. How are things looking ahead of Sunday for these two specifically? 
Right, so what has been particularly interesting or boring, depending on how you look at it, is the way that presidential polls for this election have largely remained the same throughout the campaign. Uh, we've got Lola in the mid to high 40% range and Bolsonaro stuck in the low 30s. And you know, it's been that way for ages now. And with that outlook, the main question seems to be whether Lula can actually win the whole thing in the first round. As we've mentioned earlier in the show, if any candidate scores more than 50% of the valid votes on Sunday, valid votes being discounting spoiled ballots, then that candidate would win the election outright and we don't need a runoff. Right. And the polls, even if we take them with a grain of salt, the runoff polls, they show that Lula is poised to beat Bolsonaro comfortably in a runoff, uh, if it comes to it. And history shows us that uh, in the presidential election, that has never been a come-from-behind win in the runoff. Uh, what difference would it make for Lula and for Brazilian politics at large if Lula manages to wrap the whole thing up on Sunday? So there are definitely a few benefits to it. Uh, first of all, if he wins in the first round, it gives Lola a strong mandate as president because you need a whole lot of support to be able to win an election uh, without the need for a runoff in Brazil. But at the same time, it also shows a powerful rejection to Bolsonaro because, you know, win or lose, he's set to lead the far right for many years to come in Brazil and a crushing first round defeat would be highly damaging to his influence. But avoiding a runoff is certainly in Lola's best interests because if we go to a second round, that means an entire month of extra campaigning. Lola's leading the polls because he can beat Bolsonaro, not necessarily because he's the ideal candidate for everyone. You know, he, he hasn't even released the final version of his manifesto yet. And, you know, an extra month in the spotlight may force him into showing his hand and potentially losing some votes. He's got a healthy lead now, but you know a month is definitely a long time in Brazilian politics. So what the polls say in regards to his chances of winning it all already in the first round, which for Lula would be a first. Uh, Lula won two presidential terms, but he needed two rounds in each of his successful tries. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. Uh, polls at the moment have Lola at around 50 to 52% of valid votes. And, you know, if they are to be believed, then, you know, Lola's golden. But as we never tire of saying at the Brazilian report, polls shouldn't be taken as kind of accurate snapshots of a given election. Instead, they should be used as kind of film reels to spot trends. And there's every chance that pollsters have either over or underestimated the support for either of the top two candidates. And we'll only find that out for sure on Sunday. Yeah, and we have written about that on the Brazilian report. The uh, difference between different polls is because of sampling. Uh, institutes have their own way of sampling, their own questions, which may uh, lead uh, respondents one way or the other, depending on how they're done, their order. So we have to take all that into account. But uh, even if we're not taking the absolute polling numbers as gospel, even if we are taking into account the differences between uh, their methodologies, most polls are telling the same story, right? Most movie reels are going in the same direction, aren't they? Well, what we're seeing is what Brazilian politics junkies call the opening of the alligator's mouth. 
because after the top two candidates have been, you know, stable for months, what we're seeing now is Lola's just slowly starting to pull away as if the, you know, if the, if the crocs jaws are starting to open up. And what is opening up the crocodile's mouth? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say for sure. Uh, but one suggestion is that Lola's push for tactical voting may well be working uh, because he's targeted voters of the third and fourth place candidates, Ciro Gomez and Simone Tebic, urging them to back him in the first round, defeat Bolsonaro and just get the whole thing over and done with. Because, you know, those who back Ciro and Tebic, they, they know that their candidates have no chance of winning. So the argument is that they may well, you know, they may well just side with Lula anyway. And besides trying to lure the voters of Simone Tebic and Ciro Gomes, what else is Lula looking for in terms of getting that first round win? What are the variables uh, that we see at play here? Well, a big part of Lula's lead comes because he has huge support from Brazil's poor, which makes up a massive part of the country's electorate. Now, the election takes place on Sunday and it is mandatory, but turnout among the poor has always been lower than the overall average. Because, you know, when you think about it, a large number of poor people in Brazil will still have to work on Sunday, often for long hours and unregistered jobs and sometimes really far from their own homes. Many of them ended up unable to get to polling stations on time, and you know, maybe that could harm Lula's chances of grabbing that first round win. And interestingly, uh, the Workers' Party has um, told their municipal level uh, representatives to push municipalities into uh, securing uh, the well functioning of public transportation in order not to disrupt. Uh, the way that voters get to polling stations. Because, of course, turnout may be the key aspect of this uh, in terms of will or won't Lula win it all in the first round. And as you said, despite voting being mandatory, it has become increasingly easy to justify an abstention without punishment. And turnout has gotten progressively lower from election to election, Uh, in 2020, there was a record, but it was in the middle of the pandemic. We didn't have vaccines. So it's hard to know how will that translate into this year's election. And I imagine that there are many people out there who feel comfortable that Lula will win. Maybe they say, well, it's not my vote that is going to tip the scales one way or the other. So I might just not bother to Uh, go out and vote, especially because we're seeing this sort of spree of political violence going on in Brazil. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely possible. Uh, and then when we look at the other side of the coin, you know, Bolsonaro's supporters are highly mobilized and engaged. You know, he's brought massive numbers out to street protests. So, you know, it would be no surprise if he actually managed to bring his full 30-odd percent of supporters to the polling stations on Sunday. And not only are they mobilized and engaged, but a lot of them genuinely believe Bolsonaro will win, perhaps even in the first round, because Bolsonaro himself said that, well, if I don't get 60% of the votes, then something abnormal might have happened with the vote count. Well, exactly, because among Bolsonaro supporters, there has been this consistent mistrust of opinion polls, which, you know, essentially consists of them pointing towards massive crowds and street demonstrations and saying, you know, look at this, how is this guy not going to win? 
And, you know, Bolsonaro himself has fueled this. You know, he's calling the pollsters liars. Yeah, no, and one thing that is interesting is that uh, pro-Bolsonaro supporters, uh, they use one argument time and again is that, well, look at uh, the 2018 polls. They showed Fernando Haddad in front of Jair Bolsonaro in the runoff, and then Bolsonaro just won by a landslide, 10 points, which is a significant margin. Now, that's one of the reasons why I take runoff simulations with a grain of salt if we are not already in the runoff stage, because Haddad just briefly appeared ahead of Bolsonaro, but that was during the first round. So, like I said, when voters are not yet with their headspace thinking that there are only two candidates. So that's why polls, during the first round, they are accurate and reliable when they're talking about the first round. And they're only accurate about the runoff when we are already in the runoff. Because when the runoff started in 2018, Bolsonaro was always miles ahead of Haddad. The polls did not get wrong that trend. And I mean, this talks about the polls lying and the polls being part of this broad conspiracy to unseat Bolsonaro is part of a strategy that Bolsonaro has employed for more than a year now to suggest and not in a subtle way that he will not accept the election results if they don't go his way. And he has said that the voting system, which is 100% electronic, is not to be trusted, that uh, the machines can be rigged, even if he has himself admitted it, that he has not any shred of evidence. And we have re been reporting on this sort of fear among power brokers in Brazil that Bolsonaro may try to barricade himself in office after a defeat. Where are we with all that? Well, you know, amid all of this kind of talk and analysis, it's, you know, it's still unclear uh, because on many subjects, including this, Bolsonaro's rhetoric and messaging is intentionally ambiguous. You know, he has said that he will accept a defeat at the ballot box, but only if the process is fair. And, you know, with regard to barricading himself in office, I, you know, I'm less convinced that he would do something so drastic. Um, for instance, you know, around the world and in Brazil, the general feeling among the far right is that the Trump government kind of taking ownership of the January 6 riots was, you know, was a mistake. For Bolsonaro, the strategy seems to be more, you know, rabble-rouse your radical followers, instigate them not to accept an electoral defeat, and then, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know. And I think at this point, the fear is not about an orchestrated movement to kind of storm the Supreme Court or stop Lola from taking office. It's more about just an escalation of political violence around the country. So we all want to share something with you and with our audience. I'm preparing a story about the election for the weekend. And I was talking to José Álvaro Moisés. He is a University of São Paulo researcher who works with issues related to the quality of democracy. And I remember that uh, I talked to him on the week that we launched the Brazilian report back in October 2017. And he was pretty optimistic that uh, Brazilians uh, do care about democracy and we did not face the sort of imminent risk of a democratic disruption or anything of the kind. He 
was today much less optimistic about that because he was pointing out, and this is interesting because this is something that uh, we reported last year already, but then the entire Brazilian media landscape sort of forgot that this aspect is lurking around, which is the fact that Bolsonaro and uh, his acolytes, they talk about Article 142 of the Constitution, which essentially is talking about how uh, the branches of government can ask the armed forces to guarantee law and order. Now, a lot of Bolsonaro supporters are trying to uh, distort the provisions in this article by saying that they authorize the president to call for a military intervention, which has been the sort of dog whistle term for a military coup. And that uh, this risk is there and is pretty present, according to Professor Moises, which brings us to the other topic that uh, we were planning to talk about, political violence, which is getting out of control, right? I mean, on Saturday, a man went into a bar in the northeastern state of Ceará. He asked if anyone there was a Lula voter. A man raised his hand. And then this man who raised his hand to say, well, I'm a Lula voter, he was fatally stabbed in the ribs. That's just the latest in a long line of incidents, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, we've been covering this phenomenon in depth on the Brazilian report. And, you know, I think for me, at this point, after seeing all of these incidents, the main worry is that Bolsonaro has so many gun-toting radical supporters who are expecting a win on Sunday. And if Lola does end up winning in the first round, you know, they're bound to be public celebrations in cities around the country and these armed Bolsonaro fans will be looking to release their frustration somewhere. You know, it's a bit of a powder keg situation, I think. Yeah, and rest assured that we will be covering all the latest developments on Sunday and in the aftermath. So we want to thank you very much. Thanks, Gustavo. I'll see you back here in the studio on Sunday and hopefully our listeners will tune in to our social media accounts on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, and of course, on our website, Brazilian.report. See you there. And if you like explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it's really helpful for us to reach a broader audience. Or better yet, you can sign up for the Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your subscriptions is what fuels our journalism. If you are already a subscriber, then you can give us some extra support by filling up our coffee mugs with donations on Buy Me A Coffee. This membership program comes with special perks like behind-the-scenes content and exclusive newsletters, and a shout-out here on this podcast. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. Explaining Brazil will be back next week, and we at the Brazilian Report will be back in just a few days with our special election day coverage. Thank you very much. <laughs>